I love a good story, whether it's in a book or on TV or in a movie or even someone just telling me it. I love to hear a good story. There's something about stories that kind of draw us in and capture our imagination. And we can imagine, especially if it's written down or someone's telling us, what the scenes look like, how it's all unfolding, and no two imaginations are the same. So we both have different ideas as to how it unfolds. And depending on how this story would start, I would have some expectations as to what this story would end up looking like. You know, if I was hearing a story or I went to a movie and it started with a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I'm expecting, you know, Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, maybe Yoda, stuff like that, because it's Star Wars. Or if I'm reading a book and it says, once upon a time, I'm expecting some kind of fantasy, fairy tale kind of atmosphere. Something like Beauty and the Beast, right? So you have Belle, the princess, and, and Beast, and Gaston, and all those things. I just like the Disney version. I'm, I know there are other versions. And you have an idea of how it's going to unfold. There's usually some kind of conflict that has to be overcome. Something that looks bad ends up being good, or something that looks good ends up being bad. You have an idea because the style, the genre of literature fits to it. There's certain things you're expecting to happen, expecting to see. You can imagine it coming forward. How something starts will help us understand what it is to be. Now, sometimes it might flip itself over and you might be like once upon a time and then it takes the whole genre of fairy tales and puts it on its head like Shrek, but it still has some elements that you expect to see in that style, in that genre. So how something starts is important to understand what it will be. Because how something starts helps us understand what style and what genre of literature something that's written or even something that's shared would would be. What the story is fits into some kind of category. And there can be bending in those categories. There could be a blending of different styles for sure. But usually there's some expectations as to what's going to happen. Like if you were to read a John Grisham novel, you would be expecting some kind of courtroom drama. And if you were reading a Nicholas Sparks novel, you'd expect some kind of romantic thing happening and crisis happening in people's lives. And I've never read either of those authors, to be honest, so I'm just going with what I've got the impression it's like. Because there's a style that they fit into, a genre, and they fit into it well. The way they're writing is meant to be read and understood in a certain way. And also, on top of that, the context of what things are written or heard into plays a big part in how we would understand it. Like, if I were to say to you that the eagles destroyed the bears... You could have two minds about it. Some of us would be like, wow, that's a crazy National Geographic special. And some of you would be like, wow, I guess the Philadelphia Eagles beat the Chicago Bears in football. We wouldn't know unless we had the context. If it was a football game, we'd go, okay, yeah, it's about football. If it was a National Geographic channel, we know it's about an actual eagle attacking a bear. But context plays a key. So it can start off a way, and we have an idea of what it would be, but if we don't know the context of it, we might get lost and pretend it's something else, or understand it to be something it's not actually. So we need to know context, and we need to know genre. Or how about if I told you that there was an enormous elephant with huge ivory tusks, 
And it was battered and bruised and dressed in stars. And it was fighting a donkey clad in leather and stripes. You might be thinking this is a fantasy story, something like Lord of the Rings or something like that. But actually, it's a political cartoon. And so we could have these images, but if we don't know the context, we might not understand it. And for some of us, we would look at this political cartoon and go, I still don't understand it. But for others, they would say, yeah, this is about Republicans and Democrats in the U.S., and it's a battle for an election. The cartoon doesn't tell us that, but it's using images in a context that people who know that context understand. So how a story starts helps us understand the genre it is, the style it is, and its context helps us understand and make sense of what's going on and the images that unfold. So Rob, where are you going with this? Well, this morning I want to talk about the book of Revelation, which is one of the most challenging and sometimes disturbing sections of our Bible. For some of us, it is a section we have ignored or avoided. For some of it, it is a section that we've embraced so much that we believe we know when Jesus is coming back and how it's all going to end. For a long time, this book has been either ignored or embraced to say something that maybe it actually was never intended to say. So when I say to you, Revelation, what comes to mind? For many of us, we will have images of the end, the end of the world. We will think about the rapture and the antichrist, the number 666 or the four horsemen of judgment, or Jesus coming back. But the thing is, when I say all those terms of the end and the rapture and the antichrist and 666, some of those terms actually don't appear in this book, like rapture or antichrist. Neither of those terms appear in the book of Revelation. But for about 150-ish years, maybe 100, closer to 200, people have incorporated that thinking that it's about how the church is going to be taken up to heaven and how the Antichrist is going to take over the earth. And it's been a very recent thought to develop that. And it comes from a style of thinking called dispensationalism that says that there are different dispenses, different categories of time and how God worked. And it is really a very recent belief. And it's not something that would have been believed in Jesus' day or Paul's day or the writer of Revelation's day. It's actually a very recent, very American belief. And so even around the world, if we talk about other aspects of the church, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, who actually kind of avoid the book of Revelation altogether, they wouldn't believe these things. Well, why is that? Well, because sometimes when we read something that we don't fully understand, we try to make sense of it. And so we read a story that says once upon a time, and we hear some images, and we go, well, this must be what it's like. But it's different when we come to the Bible. Because the Bible was written to an audience in a time who were meant to understand what they were reading or hearing. And that audience is not us. And so we need to do the work to understand what they would have understood so that it can mean something for us today. That's why I always say that the Bible is not written to you, but it's for your use. So when we come to the book of Revelation, what I want to do this morning is I want to explore a little bit of how some of us read it and maybe some other ways that we could read it that actually might have more benefit to us and be more accurate to what I think 
is the actual intention of this book. So when I asked you about what words might come to mind when you think of the book of Revelation, there's a chance that some words just didn't come to mind. And those might have been things like the word lamb, or the word witness, or the word throne, which are actually words that appear over and over and over again in this book. But most of us don't think of those words because it's not always what's popularly said about this book. There are a few different ways that we can read the book of Revelation. One is called like a predictive futurist view. And that's the one that's most popular. It became extremely popular in the 19th century when the Schofield Study Bible actually kind of incorporated it in its writing. So people thought it was what was actually scripture, but it was really just notes on the scripture. And this point of view really points to that everything in Revelation is about the future. And in fact, everything in the Revelation uh, is not understood by its audience. They could not know. And it's only those of us who've come later who could understand it. And this view is incredibly popular. As I said, it's in primarily popular in the U.S. One of the reasons why is because a lot of this view actually centralizes itself around the United States of America being a Christian nation that is meant to help bring about the end, and rescue people. It's kind of a Messiah complex that got developed at some point in America's history, and not everybody holds to it, but a lot of people do. And because of that, they've taken this view that the book of Revelation is all about the future, and only they, or we, can know about it now, and not the people who first heard it. This view got incredibly popular in the 60s and 70s and 80s. There was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and that was in so many people's bookshelves, and they read it, and there was actually a multitude of printings of it, because in the first printing, he said the world was going to end in the 80s. And then when it passed, he printed it again, saying a different day, and then a different day. And then finally, he stopped putting a date in the book. And so if you have a first edition, it'll tell you when the world ended, and you might have missed it. And that kind of view is, is gone into Hollywood and into novels like the Left Behind series. And that's where most of us have gotten our understanding of the book of Revelation. But it's probably not, in my opinion, the most accurate view. There are other ways of reading it as well. So one way would be called the preterist view. And the preterist view is that, yes, again, the book is all very symbolic and it's like a code to be uncovered, but it's about everything that's already happened in the past. And there's another view that's called the poetic view, that it sees it as a unfolding about the past, present, and future, and talks about good and evil throughout history. There's another view that's called the theopolitical view that sees it as emerging from a time of great persecution and sets the stage for the kingdom of God to be at battle of the kingdoms of this world. And finally, there's a kind of a pastoral or prophetic view of this book that sees that it applies in the past, the present, and the future, and ultimately is revealing to us what we see is not always the way things are. Now, there are other different perspectives, and even within each of those ideas, there are further details that could be unfolded about how people believe certain things. But my view is that actually a lot of them are right in different ways. Now, I do not believe that what was written in Revelation could not be understood by its original audience. I don't believe that at all. To me, that goes against everything of Scripture. 
So I wouldn't say I would lean towards that futurist view, but I do believe a lot of it happened in the past. And I do believe it has a message to us in the present as well as the past and for our future. And I do believe it is showing us that what we see is not the way things always are. And so I think that there's validity in all these different views in different ways. But ultimately, I do not believe we can understand the book of Revelation unless we understand its genre or style and its context. And to do that, we actually just need to read the first line. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. It says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. There's a few different statements, words in there that are key for us to understand what this book is all about and if it's about the future as much as some people say it is. Well, the first one is the word revelation. This is what the book is called. In Greek, it's apocalypso. And so a lot of us think of the word apocalypse and it means the end, but that's not what it means at all. In fact, what it means is to reveal. And it's not just a word that means to reveal, it's actually a style of writing. There's a period about 400 years, about 200 years BC to 200 years AD, where this style of writing, the apocalyptic style, was incredibly popular in Israel. Individuals would use it and understand that certain images in it represented or meant certain things. They would understand that like the number seven would mean complete or all or whole. And so if there was seven of something, it would be the fullness of something. They would understand that when something was repeated multiple times in different ways, it was really all about the same thing. They'd have an understanding that when they heard or read an apocalypse, it was about right here, right now. And so when this book starts, it says it is an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It is a revealing of Jesus. Jesus is showing people something. And it's in a style that is very specific, a very specific genre. And we know it a little bit because we have some of that in our Old Testament. Ezekiel has prophetic visions that are apocalyptic in nature. Daniel has apocalyptic visions as well. Those of us who have looked at the Deuterocanonical books know that there's a few apocalypses in there. There's, it's a style. It's, it's a genre of writing that people knew and used. And usually they used it as a code to say things that would probably get them killed if they just blurted it out. Years ago, I volunteered at a church and I remember hearing a story from one of the kids uh, about their experience when they lived in Iraq. They lived in Iraq in, in the 90s, and they had to flee to Canada. And one of the reasons they had to flee is that if someone were to say something about then Saddam Hussein, uh, they would be killed. And so one of their family members said something, and they disappeared. They knew that if they was to be said out loud to be critical of a leader, that there would be consequences that would take their lives. And so in that real historical context, just not that long ago, People were living like this, where they had to be in fear of what they said, because if it was heard by people that they were speaking against, it would cost them their lives. In the first century world, and the second century world, and for quite a few centuries, 
It was the same thing for the Christian community. If they were to say certain things against the leadership, against the empire, it would cost them their lives at different periods. And oftentimes, the way they would make sure they could communicate those things, either as an encouragement or as a reflection of what's going on, they would use a style of literature called apocalypse so that the leadership, the empire, wouldn't understand what they're talking about. So it would just sound like a fantastic story, but really they were talking about them. It would save them their lives. It's a very real reality that the early church went through at different times. And so this style of writing, though it's not familiar to us, was familiar to them. And so the beginning of the book of Revelation says it is an apocalypse, a revelation, an opening up, an unfolding, a literary style said from Jesus. That's the second important part, that this is a message from Jesus. And we're going to get into it a little bit where he's very specific and speaking through and to this person we know as John. And the truth is we don't know exactly who John is, and that's okay. Some think that he's the one who wrote John's gospel, and he might be. Some think he's the later person, or to be someone who was taught by John. We're not exactly sure. Depending on how we date this book, it could be either way. But it doesn't change its validity. The early church knew that this was a document that should be read and understood for a purpose. It says, which God gave him to show his servants. This is another key word. Sometimes this word gets translated to actually slaves, doulos. It's you are individuals who give your lives over to Jesus. It's for those people. So it is a message from Jesus that's written in a style at a time to people who have given their lives to Jesus. For what must soon take place. That word soon is really, really important. It comes up twice in the book of Revelation. Once here, once in chapter 22, verse 6, right at the end. And both times, the word that gets used is the exact same. And it gets used a few times in Scripture. One of the times is to speak about chains that fall off while one of the, while the followers of Jesus are in prison in the book of Acts. And the word that gets used for soon means soon or immediately or quickly or right now. And so this first statement in this book is that it is a written document from Jesus or a communicated document from Jesus in a style known as apocalypse for people who align themselves with Jesus about what's happening soon or now, but not 2,000 years in the future. That's a very interesting statement if you try to understand it in its language and in its time. One of the reasons why I believe that this is not a book about all the way in the future, and it talks a lot about the past, both their present and the past before them, is some of the events that unfold in this book. In Revelation chapter 12 is one of those key events. Revelation chapter 12, it starts off that there was a great sign that appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain. As she was about to give birth, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. 
So right now you're thinking, wow, this is fantastic. This is definitely the future. It's got to be because there's dragons in the sky and there's a woman in the sky and, you know, she's like standing on the moon and that's just incredible. But his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule with all nations, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God that she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Now this sounds fantastic and it sounds amazing. And we can imagine that it's very much the future because we've never seen dragons in the sky. And we've never seen a woman who stands on the moon, uh, who's clothed with the sun. Like this just sounds fantastic. And we've never seen this before. But the language that gets used in Revelation and apocalypses in general is not language that is descriptive in appearance, but descriptive in essence. Now imagine like a a painting that you love, maybe like Van Gogh's Starry Night. You look at that painting and you go, wow, that is beautiful, and you know it's a starry night. But if you were to go outside, and wherever you go outside in the night, it won't look like that. You know it won't look like that. There's no swirls in the sky. The colors are different, and stars look different. But you know those are stars. You know what that picture is depicting, and it's showing us the essence of a starry night. It's not an exact description. Or you can look at uh, Pablo Picasso and a lot of his self-portraits. Sometimes he uses like cubism, where he makes himself into different shapes. You know that's not what he looks like, but he's describing the essence of his person in art. That's the same way with the book of Revelation. The imagery that's there is not descriptive in appearance, but descriptive in essence. And so language like dragons and beasts usually mean evil leaders of some kind. So emperors, people like Herod in the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And to be clothed by the sun is to be pure, like Mary in the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And to be pregnant is like Mary again, giving birth to Jesus, who they flee to escape that awful Herod. Revelation 12 is retelling the birth of Jesus in an apocalyptic manner. It occurs at about the middle of this book and is meant to be a pivotal central point that's being made about everything that unfolds. Because the book of Revelation isn't about what is happening in the future about how the world's going to end, but it's actually about how do we be faithful to this child who was born and eventually died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins so we can experience life in his fullness and be made right with God. How do you live faithfully to him in a world that doesn't want you to be living faithfully to him? That's really what the book of Revelation is about. But sometimes we get so wrapped up into the imagery of it all that we can miss that point. What I want to do over the next little while here at Bromley is to try and walk through this book a whole lot more. To do it together online, likely we'll do it as we did similar to the book of Matthew recently where I highlighted some things and tried to talk about its language and its context. Well, I want to do that with the book of Revelation as well, and we'll start that probably in August. Because I believe that this book is actually incredibly useful and helpful. I believe this book is actually a great encouragement to us 
to continue to follow Jesus and be faithful to him even when things don't seem like we they're going right. And one of the reasons why I see that is because there's certain patterns that come up throughout this book. One of the things that comes up throughout this book is language that gets used between the difference of what is heard and what is seen. So John will hear something, but then when he looks to see it, it's very different. One of those moments is in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5, 4, it says that John wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. And then one of the elders said to him, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is triumphant. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so John hears that the lion, you know, you think of a lion, it's powerful, it's beautiful, it's majestic, it is the king of the jungle. But it says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Right. So what he sees and what he hears pictures very differently. And that's part of the purpose of this book, is what we see is not actually how things are. Another moment where it comes up, and it happens many times, is is in chapter 7 where it says that, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, so those who were rescued by God, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And numbers are very symbolic and have meaning, and so you can look up what that means. But he gives a list of who all those people are and from what tribes. And he says, After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. So he hears that these people from these nations of Israel are sealed, are saved. But when he looks, he sees all kinds of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds, and it's so many, he can't even count them. So John is showing that there's a contrast between what he hears and what he sees. He hears that you know, there's a select number who are saved and from a certain grouping. But he sees that it's a multitude that no one can count. And it's from every background possible. And they all worship Jesus. He hears that it's a lion, a powerful war symbol, triumphant. But he sees a lamb who was slain, who's on the throne. He's saying what you think is, isn't. What you think is the way isn't. He paints this picture, this beautiful image about a God who is on the throne, who is thought to be a lion, and he is victorious like one, but he's actually victorious through his suffering like a slain lamb. John is painting this picture for us to embrace, to us to capture our imagination that what we see around us isn't the way things always are. And in fact, even when we see things looking chaotic and dysfunctional and like God does absent, there's still a lamb on a throne who is victorious. The book of Revelation is not easy to read. I know that. And I I know that even some of the stuff I've said right now might actually not be all that helpful for you to just jump back in and read it yourself. But we need to understand what its context was and what its genre is before we can apply it to us now. Ultimately, the picture that gets painted, in my view, in the book of Revelation, 
is that Jesus has a message to his church, to all of his followers. And that in times of persecution, in times of suffering, it may seem like God is absent. That's what we see around us. In times where we feel alone, in times where we feel isolated, in times where we feel unloved, it may seem like God is not there for us. But the revealing is that he is. That even in the midst of the persecution, in the isolation, in the pain, in the suffering, in the why God this doesn't make sense, there's a lamb on a throne who is victorious. And he's victorious through his suffering and invites us into a life with him to be part of that multitude that finds the fulfillment and hope in him. The book of Revelation was meant to be an encouragement to a first century audience who was experiencing isolation and persecution, who was experiencing a sense of maybe God isn't around, and so maybe we it doesn't matter what we do. And so we see that in the list of churches and the things that they experience in chapters 2 and 3. And we see that in the talk of the martyrs and those who suffered. And ultimately we see it in the hope of a new or renewed heavens and earth. That the whole point of this is we worship a God who is present and always will be. More than anything, this book is about worship. It's not about the future or the end of the world so much. It's about worshiping the God who is present. And that might seem very foreign to us. But there's a great book by Eugene Peterson called Reverse Thunder that really helps us to understand that and its poetic nature as to why it actually is about worship of a God who is present at all times, even in the midst of suffering and pain. Michael Gorman, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, says it this way. Revelation is not about the Antichrist, but it's about the living Christ. It's not about the rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. It was written to a people at a time who were going through something. We need to understand what they were going through. And then we can actually start to draw parallels about what we may experience at times too. But it's not written to us, but it is for our use. And for our use, it is a book of worship that focuses on Christ, that he is present always and he sits on the throne, and that no matter what happens, he will always be victorious. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are victorious in Christ, and that because of your victory, what we experience now and what we experience at times of our pain and our suffering and our sorrow, there is hope in. God, I thank you that thousands of years ago, you inspired John to uh, say or write these words down as a vision of you being ever-present. And I know, God, this morning that we have different views on this book. And I know for some of us, what I've shared is hard to accept because it's different than what we've learned. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that we open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us in this very challenging book. And that we put our focus on you, Jesus, more than anything. Not about what will come of the future, but of you right now. And how do we live as followers of you in a world that doesn't follow you? God, I believe that's what this book is about. This is why you inspired it. This is why you shared these words with John. And I pray we adapt it and adopt it into our hearts to understand what it means to 
believe you are the lamb who was slain, slain, who is a victorious lion, and to live like that every day. And I just pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.